I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're back for part two of our three-part exploration of the Eagles and the Battle Royale within their ranks when they were at the height of their fame in the late 70s. If you tuned in for peaceful, easy feelings, well, have you got the wrong show? (laughs) Yes. In the first part of our series, we discussed the feuds between the two leaders of the Eagles, Don Henley and Glenn Frey, and the other two guys in the band in the early 70s, Bernie Ledden and Randy Meisner. In this episode, we'll be focusing on the bitterest intraband feud in the Eagles, the one involving guitarist Don Felder, which dragged on for more than 25 years. Now, Fingers Felder is most famous for co-writing the Eagles' biggest hit, Hotel California. And it's safe to say that for most of his time in the band, he was thinking to himself, this could be heaven or this could be hell. <laughs> what well, bold move burning that song pun this early, I have to say. Very, hey, very man, good. <laughs> this, this is the Eagles series, man. We're bringing out all the guns. <laughs> I mean, and you're right, though. I mean, Henley and Fry ultimately mended fences with most of their ex-bandmates in the early 2010s when they were putting together their History of the Eagles documentary and the accompanying tour, which this took a chronological look at their discography. They extended invitations to Randy Meisner, Bernie Ledden to play with them, but notably they did not ask Felder. Uh, The spite from his multi-million dollar lawsuits were just too great. And let's also not forget his tell-all memoir. Yeah, an interesting wrinkle of that book is that it also illuminates the tension between Glenn Fry, the jockish and energetic quarterback of the band, and Don Henley, the taciturn perfectionist. So we'll be delving into that as well. There's so much to cover here. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. As far as I'm concerned, the Eagles' fate was sealed when Don Felder enters the picture, and he joined the group in January of 1974, apparently just one day after being called in to add slide guitar to the tracks Good Day in Hell and Already Gone. He assumed he was just being brought on as a full member. He was cut into the band's business organization, the Eagles Limited, which we'll talk more about later. But he quickly realized that Henley and Fry, uh, they had this alliance that ran the band as, in Felder's terms, a benevolent dictatorship. And this wasn't going to work for him. He wanted to be an equal eagle, not a session player, an employee, Uh, He wanted equal say in the studio. And, you know, I see both sides of this. On one hand, if you're as talented a guitarist as Don Felder, you might expect to be treated with a certain amount of, you know, respect. Maybe Fry on some level was jealous of his musical abilities. I don't know. On the other hand, you know, seniority matters in the Eagles and in any band. And no one wants, like, to have a new guy come in and just start throwing his weight around. 
As Felder tells it, he was being disrespected on a daily basis. As Henley and Fry tell it, the new guy wasn't accepting his place. Now, in this episode, we're going to be frequently referencing Don Felder's tell-all book, Heaven and Hell, which is one of the pettiest rock memoirs ever. And I can't think of a better endorsement of a rock memoir than that. Uh, (laughs) After reading this book, I had two main takeaways. Number one, being in a band with Glenn Frey and Don Henley sounds like it was hell. I mean, Glenn Frey could be a bully, and Don Henley was an extremely controlling perfectionist. Frey himself once said about his partner, no one can suck the fun out of a room like Don Henley. (laughs) But Frey himself, it seems like he relished torturing Don Felder. So that's my first takeaway. My second takeaway is that I'm not sure exactly why Felder is complaining so much. I mean, he joined the Eagles when they were already successful, and being in that band caused him to make tens of millions of dollars. And that was due mainly to Don Henley and Glenn Fry, who were basically correct in their management of the band, even if they were tremendous jerks. Right. I mentioned this in the last episode, but I'm always reminded of the quote from The Big Lebowski when he is having a, an argument, a heated discussion with, uh, with his friend Walter you're not wrong, Walter. You're just an asshole. I feel like Henley and Fry were very rarely, if ever, wrong. They were just assholes. They could have approached things better. And that's why Jeff Lebowski hates the fucking Eagles. <laughs> you're right. Exactly. And, you know, Fry and Henley would defend themselves by saying that they were leaders. They weren't dictators. And that bands aren't a perfect democracy. And the analogy they always use in interviews is that the Eagles are a sports team. You know, not everybody gets to touch the ball But if people play their positions, play their strengths, everything turns out well, the whole is greater than the sum of their parts. And they always took a view that Felder was sort of, you know, an egotistical maniac who's squabbling over credit. And there's a great Don Henley quote where he's always saying, think of how much could be accomplished if no one cared about credit, which is, you know, on some (laughs) level true, but it's pretty rich coming from him. Well, I was going to say, like, yeah, Don Henley, like, Mr. I'm, he never cared about credit right. at all. Like, you know, give me a break there, Don. Hey, yeah, Henley says in the uh, in the History of the Eagles documentary, Don Felder was never, ever satisfied, never, ever happy. And all this bleeds into the sessions for what would become Hotel California. Yes, Hotel California comes out in 1976, and it's preceded by the album One of These Nights, which was a big hit, but it's kind of all over the place. I mean, you have the title track, which is like this kind of disco rock song. You have Lion Eyes, which is like a throwback to their country rock era. You have the power ballad, Take It to the Limit. And you also have like that very weird Bernie Ledden track, Journey of the Sorcerer. I don't know if you know that song. It's like this psychedelic bluegrass song. It really shows the Eagles, I think, like in the last throes of their like, we're we're trying to be a real band type thing. You know, everyone kind of gets their showcase. And That record's pretty good, but it really, I think, suffers from being a little scattershot. So heading into Hotel California, you really see that, like, okay, this is going to be where Don and Glenn take the reins. It it feels a lot more like the work of auteurs, I think, than, like, their previous records. The other big thing that happens before Hotel California is the release of the Greatest Hits record, their Greatest Hits, 1971 to 1975, which was actually like released against their will as a parting shot from David Geffen, who, again, we're going to be covering him in the third part of our episode. So we'll get more into how that album came about, as well as all the problems they had with Geffen during the Eagles and also after the Eagles. But anyway, that Greatest Hits album, which they didn't want to have put out, but it ends up being just a a huge hit. And then you have the lineup changes that took place. Bernie Ledden's out of the band. Joe Walsh comes in. So there's a lot of uncertainty heading into Hotel California. And, you know, the Eagles want to remake themselves as this arena rock behemoth that can compete with, like, the Led Zeppelins and the Kisses and the Peter Framptons of the world. But at this point, it's not clear if this evolution is going to work. And you really see that the Eagles find a direction for themselves with the title track from Hotel California, which was the first song that they completed for that record. And it really sets the tone for that album. And it's also an example of like how collaborations worked in the Eagles because Don Felder wrote basically the music for that song. He put it on like a reel to wheel, like four track tape, and he sent it to Don and Glenn for them to basically turn into a song. And Glenn Fry came up with the concept of the Hotel California, this sort of symbol of like, lost youth, lost potential in the 60s. And Don Henley wrote the lyrics, which I think are pretty brilliant. I mean, 
I have to say that, like, as a member of Generation X, I hated this song for a long time just because I resented the Eagles. They represent, like, kind of like the most obnoxious parts of, like, baby boomer culture, I think, for, like, a lot of younger generations. But, like, at some point, I just realized that you can't deny the brilliance of Hotel California. I mean, this it's, like, a pretty great song. I mean, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I always just like the fact that there's this the mystique around what the lyrics are actually about. You know, I mean, is it Satan? Is it a dig at Steely Dan? The Steely Dan twist in that is always really interesting to me, too, that they were just, like, writing the lyrics essentially as, like, a mockery of the, like, hyper-specific Steely Dan lyrics. And, and even, like, the line about steely knives was a, a dig at them it's a song that it's like i wish i could almost hear for the first time because i i i'm so sick of it and you know you, you almost don't even hear it anymore but to actually sit back and appreciate it and and let it unfold it really is an incredible piece of work so in terms of the songwriting of hotel california because again this ended up being the eagles most iconic song it was a number one hit it was the showcase of like their most successful studio like non-compilation record it makes me think about, like, we touched on this in our first episode in this series, the, the songwriting for, for Take It Easy. Because, again, that was a song that Jackson Brown basically brought to the Eagles. Glenn Fry added, like, a line to it, and then he got a co-songwriting credit. And it speaks to how songwriting often worked in the Eagles, because I think from Don Felder's perspective, he looked at Hotel California as his song. You know, even though he didn't write the lyrics, he didn't come up with the concept, a lot of the things that people love about that song, you know, the the majestic introduction and also like that guitar duel between him and Joe Walsh at the end of the song, all that was come up by Don Felder. From Don and Glenn's perspective, however, they basically just like looked at the demo that Don Felder recorded as just like a, like a cool progression that they then turned into a song that without them, it just would have been like this sort of like weird reggae sounding demo that Don Felder came up. It didn't become an Eagle song until Don and Glenn took it and they took it to a different place. And uh, in a way, I think that's right. I think it speaks to how collaborations worked in this band, but it is the beginning, I think, of Don Felder starting to feel resentful about his place in the Eagles. And in later years, too, both Don and Glenn would be really sort of dismissive of what Felder first presented to him. I mean, I think Glenn Fry would say you would get these cassette tapes from Felder and with, you know, 95% of, of the music on there, it's like, what are we supposed to do with this? Where do you sing? It's just cluttered, random guitar licks. And so over the years, they would kind of put forward the story of like, you know, Felder would give him these tapes of kind of garbage and they noted this diamond in the rough where, oh, I, I see some potential in this. We can make something out of this. So there would be sort of squabbles in in the press and in memoirs and stuff over the years about how much each person had, you know, in, in creating that song that would define the Eagles' legacy. And I always thought that was really interesting. The other Felder track on Hotel California also created huge headaches for him, and that's Victim of Love. And on the first album that he, uh, he worked on as a full-time Eagle, 1975's One of These Nights, Felder was given lead vocal duties on his song Visions, which is a song he co-wrote with Henley. And as far as he was concerned, I think he thought that this sort of set a precedent that he would be allowed to sing his own compositions on occasion. And this created a huge problem when Hotel California came around because in addition to writing the instrumental passage for Hotel California, he, he wrote probably, I think he said he had like 16 or 17 other pieces that were rejected by the band, which I'm sure must have been infuriating at some some part. Uh, so he has Victim of Love, which he really wanted to sing himself. And he did apparently dozens and dozens of takes of really trying to, to, to nail the song. And his bandmates are less than pleased with the results. I mean, you know, he's not, he's not Don Henley. He's not as good a singer as Don Henley. Few people are. It's something to be ashamed of. And so they, they say in the History of the Eagles documentary, there was no space for filler. And Don Felder, for all of his talents as a guitar player, was not a singer. So... They make Irving Hazoff take him out to, to lunch. And while he's out to lunch, they have Don Henley do the vocals for the song. And over lunch, Irving tells Don Felder, you know, this isn't working. We got to let Don sing the song. So they come back from lunch. They play the track that they've been working on with Don Henley's vocals. And he feels like, you know, okay, I can't deny it sounds a lot better with Don Henley singing it. But hey, it's, it's, it's my song. He felt in later years that that song had been taken from him. And so then you have really the two opposing viewpoints of what a band should be. You know, this is my song, I really want to do it, versus this is what's best for the band. 
the hell with what, you know, your feelings and what you think you're entitled to. If this is the guy who sounds best singing it, he's going to sing it. And that really stuck in his crawl, I think, for, you know, the rest of his time in the band. And years later, it's a huge part of the History of the Eagles documentary. See, one thing that I find a little confusing about the victim of love story is that you're right. In the documentary, they make a big deal about how Don Felder wanted to sing this song. And the implication is that because the song was taken from him and they had Henley sing it and like him and Azoff are at lunch and there's like this sort of like ruse going on to keep Felder away from the studio that like that was the beginning of Felder feeling unhappy and that he felt betrayed. But when you read Felder's book, which came out about five years before the documentary, he really doesn't make a big deal of the victim of love thing. Like he mentions that, you know, he wrote the progression, that he wanted to sing it and that he tried to do it. But then Don Henley sang it, and he was like, oh, yeah, Don Henley's obviously a better singer than me. Let's let's keep it with Don Henley. Like, it's not – like, in the book, it's really downplayed versus the movie. So, like, I'm not really clear on, like, wh- like how big of a deal this is if maybe, you know, Don and Glenn were trying to make Don Felder look bad in the documentary or if maybe Felder was, like, doing damage control in his own book. Like, he didn't want to admit, like, how – much of a baby he was like about this victim of love thing because I think the thing that's undeniable is that like yeah Don Henley should have sang that song he's the best singer in the band it sounds good when he's doing it that doesn't make sense for Felder to sing it yeah I think Henley was saying like you know it's like me wanting to play lead guitar on my song when you've got Don Felder like it doesn't make any sense so yeah I mean that's definitely interesting and and I could definitely see how uh you know, in in the in the film, maybe maybe Henley and and Fry wanted to to you know use this as an example and really really hammer away at you know how possessive that uh, that he could be about his music. Felder also had other reasons to be annoyed with Fry and Henley, whom he dubbed the gods, which I always thought was really funny <laughs> for their their vaulted yeah. status in the band. And he does that more and more as like the <laughs> yeah. book progresses. Like like once they get into the reunion years, like he never calls them Henley no. or Fry. It's just strictly the gods. <laughs> right. It just gets more and more sarcastic as the book goes along. And he's really annoyed by their their habits on tour. Uh, he's annoyed by Henley and Fry. They make these costly demands, which he believes are coming out of the band's collective coffers. I mean, Don Henley demands on having his personal mattress be lugged around from hotel to hotel because he has a bad back from playing the drums. And they have to hire these guys to, you know, lug it out of the touring van into the hotel and get it all set up. It's this whole thing. And then he also, um, I guess, sort of was when he was dating um, Stevie Nicks at this period, would occasionally uh, squire her around on Lear jets. And Felder thought that, that was also coming out of like tour expenses, uh, which he wasn't happy about. And then, uh, I don't know, both of those you could almost kind of see. Apparently, Glenn Fry paid to have his tennis coach brought along, which is sort of slightly, <laughs> slightly less excusable than like Don Henley wanting to get a good night's sleep on his own mattress. But, uh, yeah, the tennis coach, that's definitely interesting. And he thought that, you know, Glenn Fry and Don Henley had all these perks on tour that he he wasn't entitled to, and he thought that was unfair. It sounds, too, just in general, that, like, being in this band, for as successful as they were, and, again, you know, like, the Eagles were, like, were living it up. I mean, there's all those stories about the third encore, <laughs> them, like, having access to tons of drugs and beautiful women. It seems like they were living the dream, but, like, as far as, like, performing in this band... It sounds like it was not fun at all. Like, you know, Don Felder's talked about how, you know, he was told where to stand on stage. You know, he was told, like, what colored shoes that he should wear on stage. Yeah, he tells the story in the book about how they were rehearsing one day and Glenn Fry like, made fun of, like, Don Felder's walk. Like, how he would walk up to the microphone when he sang. Because Felder said, you know, that he felt a little insecure singing on stage because he knew that he wasn't as good of a singer as certainly Henley or even Fry. And he felt like Fry was kind of like finding his weak spot and exploiting it. And this was another instance. I mean, we saw this in our previous episode where Randy Meisner was pushed to the point of like throwing Glenn Fry against the wall. Well, now Dan Felder was throwing Glenn Fry against the wall. Everyone was throwing Glenn Fry against the wall in the late 70s because he was kind of an obnoxious guy, it sounds like. And this was, I think, just compounded again by... Don Felder's feeling that he was not being treated as an equal in the band, even though he was a shareholder in the band, that he wasn't just a hired hand like Joe Walsh and Timothy B. Schmidt were. And, uh, you know, I think that was really like what was behind him being upset about these perks that Henley and Fry were getting because he felt like, you know, if we're equal, you shouldn't be 
you know, getting these perks. I should be getting them too, or none of us should be getting them. And that seems kind of stupid to me in a way. Like, it's kind of like a petty thing to be complaining about. But the conversations that were happening on those private planes, like where it was Henley, Fry, and Azop basically deciding the financial future of the band, that does seem more substantive to me. And I understand, like, why Felder would be upset about that. And that really seems to be, like, another issue for him, you know, as the 70s progress. And the tensions were so high in the band at this point anyway that even the bond between Henley and Fry was starting to crumble. And partially this had to do with just their very different personalities. And we touched on this in the first episode. They're very, very different people. And Dawn's generally been portrayed as sort of the more likable of the two, the more personable and gregarious and magnetic. Whereas Glenn is sort of more edgy and attention-seeking and kind of less afraid of, of like being an asshole and making unpopular calls. And uh, Dawn could just sort of sit back and be liked, which I'm sure must have, you know, annoyed Glenn even more that he was the one having to make the difficult calls. Uh, someone who knew them both uh, famously said that Don Henley had extraordinary charisma and that Glenn Fry had charisma, which is a, a brutal thing to say. And I'm sure that that really, really bothered Glenn. And I guess also they, they would live together at different points in the 70s. And it was kind of an odd couple scenario going on where, where Don Henley was this like controlling neat freak. And Glenn was sort of the, the Oscar Madison slob figure. Uh, minor tension, but still tension. And you couple this with just the, the general stress of, of constantly being on the road. I mean, some of their tours were like 11, 12 months long. And massive amounts of cocaine that just heightens everyone's emotions anyway. Uh, something was going to blow. <laughs> You know, it's interesting to me that, like, the Eagles have always been pretty candid about the tensions in the band. And you, know, you watch that documentary, and they're very upfront about, you know, the problems with Bernie Ledden, Randy Meisner, of course, Don Felder. But, like, you don't hear quite as much about the tensions between Henley and Fry. And I feel like there's a bit of, like, protection going on there, you know, because that's the power center of the band. And it seems like some decision was made somewhere along the line that no matter what went down between those guys, that they were going to present a unified front. But, you know, I feel like those guys must have had a lot more, you know, tension, dislike, flat out hatred, you know, going on than has been admitted to, I think. Because if you look at the Eagles, you know, they started out as a band that was essentially, you know, guided by Glenn Fry. He called himself the quarterback of the band. He, was a big proponent of what he called song power, you know, that this band should be about the songs and I'm going to be really pushing that. And all of the tensions that we've talked about so far, I mean, it seems like Glenn Fry is always at the center of it. You know, he was the one that drove Bernie Ledden out. He drove Randy Meisner out. Pretty soon he's going to have the same sort of thing with Don Felder. Glenn but Johns, as aggressive too. as he was, yeah, Glenn Johns. So he was, in a, in a way, he was like the CEO of the band, but like by the end of the 70s, it was pretty clear that like Don Henley was going to be dominating this group creatively. And, you know, as much as I think Glenn Fry, you know, he could make public statements about how, you know, we should put Don Henley to the front because that's best for the Eagles, that must have rankled him on some level. I mean, he has a pretty big ego. I, I find it hard to believe that he just, like, accepted that, you know, without any sort of, like, you know, discontent in his heart over that. You know, like, when I psychoanalyze Don Henley and Glenn Fry, and if it's not already clear, I love to psychoanalyze Don Henley and Glenn Fry. You know, I think that they were both ultimately like pretty insecure about losing what they had, which prompted them to like micromanage this band to an extreme degree. Like they have this image as being like these cool, above it all, like slick rock stars. But I think deep down, they're both like extremely self-conscious. Like there's this 1979 Rolling Stone profile where Henley has, I think, like a very revealing quote. He says, every minute I'm awake, even when I'm asleep, I'm worried about the next album and what's going to be written on it and how it's going to do and how it's going to be accepted and how my peers are going to react and how we're going to make it better than the last one and how the record company is on our case and about, hurry up, we didn't get our album from you in 1978 and it's not going to be good on our sock report and what about the profit-sharing plan? That's all, like, hyphenated, by the way. Very long quote. Don Henley, you know, I know you're into succinct songwriting. That's not a very succinct quote. But I think you get the idea here <laughs> that, you know, he thought constantly, not just about his art, but, like, how he was being perceived and how he was going to be accepted. 
And I think that drove their behavior. It's like why they wouldn't let Don Felder stand where he wanted to stand or let Joe Walsh be as crazy in the Eagles as he was outside of the Eagles. They felt that everything that this band did ultimately reflected on them. And it just made being in this band kind of a miserable experience, I think. Yeah, and in Don Felder's memoir, he talks a lot about it's it's probably the, the most revealing document I've seen about the, the descent between uh, Henley and Fry. And there's a moment when he's talking about Henley studying promo photos endlessly, just like looking at his hair and making sure it was right. And just and and Felder writes like, you know, these were just going to be on like T-shirts and given away to fans. Like these weren't these weren't like Mount Rushmore. Like this was, and it just you're <laughs> right. It really like like shows just how. Image consciousness even begin to describe it, just how how meticulous he was and how he presents himself and how the band would be presented. So yeah, you're you're right. I think that's that's a wonderful way to put it. And also, these were not like teenage friends. It's kind of like when we were talking about the police. These were like sort of older guys who had several bands in their past when they got together, and they were bonded more out of mutual ambition than any kind of real genuine friendship. And when they achieved that goal of you know musical superstardom. All that was really left between them was sort of their differences, you know? I mean, whatever common ground and camaraderie they enjoyed was just eroded by the constant pressure of having to to bang out songs or lead the band. And, I mean, Glenn Fry would later say, you know, we always had to worry about doing this or living up to that. We could talk about girls or football for a while, but it wouldn't be long before we'd remember we had to make a decision about this or we had to get another song written for the next album. So the tension in their relationship that had been present really from the very beginning, just by their different personalities, was just exacerbated by these years of pressure. And instead of discussing feelings, they would, you know, they, they took more of approach of, you know, path of least resistance and just storming out and nothing would ever get resolved. And then with all the cocaine in the mix, it was like pouring gas on the fire. So all of these tensions really come ahead because of the album Hotel California, which drops in 1976. And of course, it becomes one of the most successful albums in rock history. The band decides to release the title track as a single in spite of it being six minutes long, and it goes to number one. The album, of course, has rock radio staples like Life in the Fast Lane, Wasted Time, New Kid in Town, the before-mentioned Victim of Love. I mean, pretty much like every song on that record, I feel like, has been played on the radio to some degree. We're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more Rivals. <laughs> My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox, 
you can't go around it. So you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. In the late 70s, the Eagles just had an incredible run of success because not only did they have Hotel California, but they had their greatest hits, 1971 to 75, which dropped like right before Hotel California. There was this 18-month run where the Eagles were selling 1 million albums per month. I mean, just an incredible amount of records, just unprecedented really in the record business at that time. And, you know, by then it was beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Eagles were the most popular American rock group of the 1970s. And this all leads up to the album, The Long Run, uh, which they start working on, I I think that's about like 1978 or so. And it proves to be just like this torturous process. And basically the problem is, is that Henley feels burned out because he feels like he's like kind of blown his wad on Hotel California. Like, All of his great themes have come together on that record, and he really doesn't have anything else to write about. And there's also that thing you were talking about before that Glenn Fry was talking about, where this band really felt a lot of pressure to constantly live up to the previous album's success. You know, this wasn't a situation, say, like with Fleetwood Mac, for instance, when they put out Rumors, and Lindsey Buckingham decides consciously that he's going to make an anti-commercial record with Tusk. You know, where they knew going in that it wasn't going to be as successful as Rumors, and they were doing it by design. The Eagles didn't think that way. You know, they really felt like with the long run that, like, we have to make this record as good and as commercial as the previous record. And really, that was going to be impossible, you know, and it really kind of set up this uh, situation with the long run where, you know, they would get into a studio and just stare at each other. You know, Joe Walsh talks about how. You know, they were down in Miami working on the record and they would have tapes going and they just sat around for months in a daze, you know, trying to figure out what to do. Which is really troubling considering that all five members were songwriters, too. I mean, you think that the fact that like between the five of them, they were having such a hard time just probably just being the first one to put an idea forward. I mean, as we mentioned earlier, I mean, they they were not gentle in their criticism, too. So I'm sure for everybody who wasn't Don Henley and Glenn Fry, it was probably a pretty daunting proposition to put a song in front of them. But yeah, I mean, just the, the sessions during those times, I think it was 18 months spread out over five studios, and it was just a pressure cooker. I think I, I read that Felder and Fry got into like actual like physical tussles at certain points. And by the end of the sessions, even Fry and Henley weren't even talking. And I guess they were sending their assistants to relay messages back to each other, which was, you know, making other people's lives hell in the process. So, yeah, this was not a, a pleasant experience of making the long run. Now, it's interesting with this record because I feel like it's often looked at as a commercial failure. And like even the band members themselves, they often talk about this like being like their least favorite Eagles record. But, like, this record sold, like, 7 million copies, you know? It comes out in the fall of 79, and, like, there were, like, three hits from this record. You had the title track, you had I Can't Tell You Why, and you had Heartache Tonight. And I have to say, like, for myself, like, this is actually, like, one of my favorite Eagles records. You know, maybe because I'm just, like, addicted to intraband drama. (laughs) And, like, the exhaustion that the Eagles were feeling at this time, I think, is very apparent when you listen to the record. But I think there's, like, some good deep cuts. Like, that song, Those Shoes, which... It's a song I first heard when it was sampled by the Beastie Boys on Paul's Boutique. Like, look for that sample on that record. And like King of Hollywood, which is like one of their, I think, best like Hollywood narratives. It kind of sounds like a darker sequel to Hotel California. Um, it also has the song Disco Strangler, which is like <laughs> yes. one of the dumbest Eagle songs. But like, at least it's like likably dumb. Unlike Get Over It, which we're going to talk about that song later in this episode. Like that song is dumb in like a loathsome kind of way. You know, but like Disco Strangler, I think it's kind of likably dumb. I want to call back to something I said in our previous episode about 
the Eagles being a microcosm for America in the 70s. Because like the long run to me is like their end of the decade disillusionment album. Like the one where you really feel like all that was lost in the band in spite of their great success. Like I think of that song, The Sad Cafe, like where Henley sings, I don't know why fortune smiles on some and lets the rest go free. You know, it's a similar kind of statement to like The Last Resort from Hotel California. You know, like Henley really became an expert at these like forlorn end of the innocence ballads, you know, that I feel like ended up on all of his subsequent records, culminating with a song literally called The End of the Innocence. <laughs> you know, like like that Paradise Lost stuff, it really became like Don Henley's overriding theme, I think. Yeah, there's definitely a darkness in the album. I mean, even on the cover, like it has this funereal cover. It always reminded me of, of the Beatles' Let It Be, where you it, it feel like you knew that they were kind of at the end of the road there. I mean, just even looking at the cover alone, it it seems very, uh, just very dour. And yeah, it looks like a tombstone. It, it does, yeah. And, you know, and in that, that's what it sort of in a lot of ways proved to be for 14 years. Uh, their feuding reached a critical mass on July 31st, 1980, which was the night that the band played a benefit concert for a California senator named Alan Cranston, who also is notable in rock history for writing the leaflet that had the phrase Megadeth, which inspired Dave Mustaine on his bus ride back from New York to California after getting kicked out of Metallica. Yes. So major Good figure. rival's call back there. Oh, yeah. Major figure in rock history, Alan Cranston. Uh, he was a lefty environmentalist, anti-nuclear weapons, very much in line with Don Henley and Glenn Fry's political leanings. Uh, Felder preferred that the band steered clear of these political causes, and he was really bitter about having to go along and do this benefit. Henley and Fry put the notion across that, that Felder was just greedy and didn't like not getting paid for gigs. It was probably more of just not really liking being you know, told to be at a certain place at a certain time by the gods to do this thing that he didn't really feel that strongly for. So before the benefit concert, Senator Cranston's going down the sort of receiving line and thanking each of the band members for, for being there and putting the show on. And he gets to Felder and thanks him. And Felder replies with a curt, you're welcome, Senator, I guess. Uh, see, this is another instance where, because Felder writes about this in his book, and I think he's trying to make Len Fry look like a dick, which he does, but like... I think Felter also comes off like pretty poorly here, oh, you know, time. because they are playing a benefit show. You're already like a multimillionaire. You can play like a benefit show. It's like not that big of a deal, even though I'm sure he resented it because Henley and Fry wanted to do it. It had nothing to do with the cause. Of course, you know, Glenn Fry, he hears this like snarky comment from Felder and he like blows his stack. He has like a confrontation backstage before this benefit concert. And it's hilarious because they're walking on stage, and like Felder writes about this in his book, and Felder turns to Glenn, you know, Glenn, what you did back there, you're an asshole for doing that. He's calling him an asshole for being disrespectful to this senator. And Glenn Fry says, that's an honor coming from you. <laughs> and uh, it just gets worse from there. Like, these guys are just like talking shit to each other throughout this show. And pretty much like after every song, Glenn Fry is like pointing at Felder, and he's saying, you know, three more songs to go. I'm going to kick your ass when we get off the stage. And uh, they're just exchanging insults. And all this was caught on tape. And you can hear it in the documentary. And uh, <laughs> there's this part where he says, you're a real pro, Don, all the way. And then Don says, yeah, you are too, the way you handle people, except for the people you pay. Nobody gives a shit about it. <laughs> and Fry says, fuck you. I've been paying you for seven years, fuckhead. <laughs> And, and this uh, is all you on know, Mike. This is all on Mike. All, all on Mike. This is like the biggest, you know, American band in the world. And like they're tearing each other apart on stage like they're the replacements, you know. <laughs> and it's beautiful. And like this is the thing about the Eagles because, you know, if they were just like this pleasant, easygoing band with all these hits, they wouldn't be nearly as interesting. The fact that they had these kinds of blowups on stage to me makes them way more fascinating. And I think that's why people relish this kind of stuff, like in documentaries, because, yeah, without this, the Eagles are just kind of like a boring 70s band. But now, yeah, they're like the country rock replacements with this kind of stuff. <laughs> so the show finally ends and Feller goes backstage and he asks a roadie to hand him an acoustic guitar, which he then just smashes on the floor. It's kindling. Uh, he finishes. He looks behind him. 
Senator Cranston and his wife are there looking horrified. Like, what the hell is this guy doing? And Fry comes up to him and says, typical of you to break your cheapest guitar. <laughs> like, you can't, even, you can't even erupt in rage right, you dumbass. So this becomes like an infamous moment in Eagles history. It's called Long Night and Wrong Beach. That's like what it's been <laughs> dubbed. And it's basically blamed for the end of the Eagles. Although it really seems like it was more like a catalyst, you know, for all the tensions that were going on in the band. That it was inevitable that something like this would happen because these guys already hated each other. But before they could break up, they were contractually obligated to deliver this live record, Eagles Live. And it's crazy because, like, the record label, they wanted the band to record some new songs from the record, which is what record labels often want for live records or for greatest hits albums because it's more likely that, like, hardcore fans will buy a record with new material that they don't already own. And apparently, like, the band was offered, like, $2 million a song, you know, to put on this record. And they only wanted, like, a couple songs. But the Eagles refused to do it. And it was really, like, Glenn Fry. Like, at this point, Glenn Fry was like, I'm not going to be in the vicinity of any of these guys anymore. And when it came to mixing Eagles Live... They basically, you know, and this was like a long time ago, so well before Pro Tools or Dropbox or anything like that, they had to do the mixes via like Federal Express. <laughs> like, because like, wasn't Glenn Fry, was he in LA and the rest of the band was like in Miami? Yeah. Like, they were like on opposite coasts and like, like just total like rock star petulance basically at this point, you know, mixing this like forgettable live record <laughs> to fill out a contractual obligation so that they can like finally break up and do their own thing. Two million dollars, two songs, wouldn't do it. It's incredible. And, you know, and they spent the 80s enjoying varying degrees of solo success. I think it shook out pretty much like you'd expect. You have Henley navigating the transition to the MTV age, really the most successfully scoring a string of hits, including, I have to say, one of my least favorite songs of all time, The Boys of Summer. I absolutely, to me, I know. It's not an unpopular. Hold on. Hold the phone here. That's insane to me. I, I, look, I find Don Henley to be like pretty hateable as a person, but like I think he's written like a handful of perfect songs. Like I would say Hotel California is a perfect song. Like Desperado is like pretty great. I love the end of the innocence because I'm a total sucker for boomer rock, apparently. And I think Boys of Summer is like a perfect song, personally. I, uh, to me, it's everything that, that's clinical about 80s production and everything that's clinical and soulless about rock stars of a certain age who've made enough money. And I, I don't know, there's something, I, and I know what it's about. I know it's about you know, the end of, of 60s innocence and everything. And I know it has substantive lyrics, but I just, I think it's mostly the production to me. It, like it, it just, even the way it begins, it's, it sounds stressful. The opening synth lines sound like an ambulance siren to me. And it just, I don't know, I have never liked that song. I'm not a Henley solo fan at all, really. Actually, I like some of Glenn Fry's solo stuff a little better. I mean, No Fun Allowed is a great record. Oh, man. See, Glenn Fry's solo career to me is, like, way more hilarious. Like, to me, like, his peak in the 80s, he was like a second-tier Kenny Loggins, essentially. (laughs) Like, like his best gig was recording, like, Yacht Rock songs for soundtracks. Like, you had The Heat Is On from Beverly Hills Cop, and you had You Belong to the City and The Immortal Smuggler's Blues from Miami Vice. Smuggler's Blues, I was listening to that song before recording this episode— that's like a pretty violent song. Like, when was the last time you heard that? There's like people getting blown away in that track. And like, you know, there's like big drug deals. It's like Scarface, you know, Glenn Fry, right? Scarface. Wasn't he in that Miami Vice episode too? I think he had like an acting oh, yeah. part in that too. He was pretty good. I liked him on Miami Vice. But yeah, anyway, you know, Don Henley, he was like a huge star in the 80s. I think people kind of forget like how successful he was. Like Building the Perfect Beast, his 1984 record that had Boys of Summer on it. That sold 3 million copies. The End of the Innocence, which came out in 89, that sold 6 million copies. Wow. So, like, he was, like, doing Eagles-type numbers on his own. But eventually, like, he wanted to return to the band. Like, he's talked about how, like, when you're a solo artist, you have more pressure on you. You have to make all the decisions. And he wanted, like, the relative ease of being in a band. Although, like, is being in the Eagles relatively easy? I mean, that that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It seems like... Your, your solo career was probably less toxic than being in the Eagles. But ultimately, I think the businessman and Don Henley knew that, like, if I get back together with, with, with these guys and we just play our hits, we're going to make, like, a ton of money on the road. 
And there were plans afoot as early as 1990 for a tentative. Like, they didn't call it a reunion, a resumption. And, uh, and they had sessions, <laughs> which is hilarious. They held sessions in 1990 to, to refuel the band. Irving Azoff put it together. And they had four of the five. Uh, Glenn, who was, you know, the least interested in reuniting, he was going to come by a little later. So the four other guys were in the studio working on some songs together. And then a couple days into it, Irving showed up, you know, stone-faced. Well, Glenn's not coming to the party, I think was the phrase. Uh, he'd say, you know, I was having a fine time doing what I was doing. So uh, the, the other four, I guess, briefly considered trying to do their own, like, almost Eagles thing. And then Glenn got wind of it and said, you know, if you do, I will go to the press and possibly make some, you know, horrific legal issues for you. So that whole thing was put on ice until 1993, another Irving Azoff production, an album called Common Thread, which is an Eagles covers album done by various country stars. Uh, and it was done mostly to raise money for Don Henley's charity, the Walden Woods Project. Travis Tritt did a cover of Take It Easy, pretty good cover, and asked if the band would be in the video for the song. And it was kind of a cool concept. I mean, basically, he was playing like a honky-tonk, and the, his backing band on the stage would be the actual Eagles. It would be the first time that these four, or five guys had all gotten together since, you know, I, I think that that night in Long Beach in 1980. And it was such a kind of off-the-wall idea that they all went along with it, even Glenn. And they were all on stage at this bandstand at this little dive bar. And they were all holding instruments together for the first time in, in 13 years. And um, and they started saying, you know, I think Felder said to Glenn, yeah, you know, we should do this more often. And to, I guess, everyone's surprise, Glenn said, yeah. And that really set the stage for the Hell Freezes Over reunion the following year. Yeah, and, and of course, uh, Hell Freezes Over, it's a reference. I think it was a Don Henley quote where someone asked him in the early 80s, like when the Eagles would reunite, and he said, when Hell Freezes Over. Well, in 1984, Hell froze over, the Eagles got back together, but it wasn't going to be the same as it was in the 70s. Like, there was this edict passed down that was dubbed the Glenn Commandments from <laughs> Glenn Fry. That I love that. Basically, you know, there wasn't going to be any, any drugs or alcohol backstage, you know, Big contrast from the 70s. I think part of the reason for that was that Joe Walsh was just getting out of rehab at this time. So they were trying to look out for Joe, make it a more sort of friendly environment for him, which, you know, I think makes a lot of sense. I think that was a nice thing for them to do. But the most important demand and the one that ended up being the most divisive was that Glenn wanted him and Don to make more money than the rest of the band. And of course, this was going against the whole idea of one for all and all for one that they had when they first started out. But to me, it also makes a lot of sense. I think especially Don Henley. Like, I wonder if Glenn and Don made the same amount of money or if Don made the most money. Because if you're doing this in terms of, like, who's the most important member of the band, like, it seems like Don Henley, is, you know, after his very successful solo career, was clearly the biggest star. But it makes sense to me that, like, they would be making the most in the band, but... Don Felder didn't like this at all. Like, he was the lone holdout. I think Joe Walsh and Timothy B. Schmidt, those guys, you know, they're music business lifers. They know a good gig when they see it. They're like, whatever you say, Glenn and Don, we know we're going to make millions of dollars no matter what. But Don Felder, for whatever reason, could not accept that. And it really sets the tone for the tension of the reunion years. Right, and I think it goes back to when he was first asked to join the Eagles in the 70s when he was cut in as a joint owner of their their internal company, Eagles Limited. And so I, I think it gets back to that. He's thinking, well, wait, why? I'm a part owner of this. What do you mean I'm not making as much as you guys are? We are equal in this business structure we had in place for years and years. Uh, so he's dragging his feet signing this new deal. And then Glenn Fry ends up calling Felder's representative and tells his representative, Look, man, I'm sorry you have to represent the only asshole in this whole band. Felder signs by sunset or he's out of the fucking band <laughs> by sundown. Yeah, I love that. By sundown. <laughs> it's like you know, he still had a little bit of cowboy in him at yeah. that point, I think. It's, it's so classic. But the strong arming works. Felder's back in. The Hell Freezes Over tour kicks off with, you know, a long stream of very well-regarded blockbuster tours. There's a live album with a truly horrendous new song called Get Over It, and it's, uh, Henley writes the lyrics, it's about sort of whiny self-help disciples uh, who, you know, aren't taking responsibility for their own problems in their lives, uh, and it features the memorable lyric, I'd like to find your inner child and kick its little ass. 
Uh, truly one of the worst songs of all time. I mean, the lyrics are terrible. Like the music is just like some knockoff Chuck Berry riff. It just sounds like something they crapped out in like 15 minutes. You know, such a big contrast to like an album like Hotel California, which is so impeccably crafted. And then they just like crap out this garbage, you know, sort of anti-PC song. Um, Yeah, you know, in Don Felder's book, he writes a lot about this period and how, you know, he really felt like he was being screwed over. Because again, you know, he's part of Eagles Limited. He's like one of the owners of like the band name. He feels like there should be an equal say. And he really feels that like he should be equally compensated to Don and Glenn. But I, I don't know how you feel about this, but like reading his book, I don't feel like he really makes a convincing case for any of this. I mean, he just comes off to me as like petty and whining. Like he complains that Don and Glenn get like fancier hotel rooms and like better limousines on tour. But like... Felder is still staying in luxury hotels and being whisked around in limousines. You know, it's not like he's, you know, being carried around in a burlap sack or something. You know, he's, he was still like a very pampered, like, rock star at this time. So, yeah, I, I just don't get it. There's another story in the book, too, where he talks about this model that was built for the Hell Freezes o- over, like, stage setup. And, like, there's little figurines for each member of the band. And, like, the figurines for Don and Glenn are white. And the rest of the band is black. <laughs> and he like takes this as like some profound slight from the gods, you know, that he's not the same color as the other guys. It's like the scene from Almost Famous with the t-shirts. Like, I'm just one of the out of focus guys. Like, yeah, it's, it's it makes no real sense. Yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, I get it. Like Don and Glenn, I'm sure they're assholes. It was probably like not fun to be in this band at all, but you're still being paid tens of millions of dollars to put up with these guys. And I have to say that, like, who among us wouldn't pick up a double neck guitar and tour with the Eagles, you know, for that amount of money? I mean, it really was a privilege that I think at some point he lost perspective on. The stress of this reunion really continues to build throughout the 90s. There's a brief respite in 1998 when they have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Uh, the only time in history that all seven members of the Eagles took the stage, they performed Take It Easy in Hotel California. Evening featured a pretty funny line from Glenn Fry. We all got along fine. We just disagreed a lot. Um, but still. <laughs> Although even even like with that, though, like in his book, like Don Felder complains right. that he wasn't allowed to speak as long as Glenn and Don. It's like, dude, come on. No one wants to hear from you. I'm sorry. It's just true. So this keeps going. It's early 2000s. I think it's 2001. Felder starts making more and more noise about the bottom line. He really wasn't happy about this deal that he was coerced into signing, which, you know, entitled, I think it was Fry and Henley, something like twice what all the other bandmates made. And he discovered that uh, Henley and Fry had found a legal loophole to make three times as much on a, a new box set, Selected Works, 1972 to 1999, And also Felder believed that Henley and Fry had extra tour expenses, like the whole mattress thing and tennis coach back in the 70s, that he thought was taken out of the the band's collective coffers as well. So he was also paying for their extra amenities that he wasn't able to enjoy in too. So he started to demand financial records, which as a member of the Eagles Limited, he was actually entitled to. uh, But Henley and Fry didn't take kindly to having their, their finances being poked around and looked into as... Fry would later say, you know, he couldn't appreciate the amount of money he was making. He was more concerned about the money I was making. So in February of 2001, they fire Felder, um, unleashing an avalanche of messy legal proceedings that would go on for years to come with Don Felder filing suits for wrongful termination, breach of contract, for something for like $50 million, a lot of money. And... Um, Attorneys for Fry and Henley said, you know, he wasn't fired because he was, like, messing around with money. It just was creatively, chemistry-wise, performance-wise, he was no longer a good fit for this band. So that was the official band line, was it had nothing to do with him complaining about money. It was more just that they'd grown apart creatively, which, I mean, I I think is both. Yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, come on. I mean, this part of Felder's book is actually, like, pretty heartbreaking for me because he's, like, really candid about how hard he begged not to be fired. Like, he called Glenn Fry. He, like, calls, like, every number that he has for Don Henley. You know, he's calling Irving Azoff, basically saying, like, look, I take it back. I'm sorry. I'll sign the paper. I'll do whatever you want. Please let me back in the band. And as we've learned so far in this series, 
Don Henley and Glenn Fry are very good about keeping grudges, I think. <laughs> and like they were not going to let him back in the band at this point. There had just been too much bitterness. And it just reminds me of like that scene in Miller's Crossing, like where John Turturro <laughs> is begging Gabriel Byrne like not oh. to shoot him. Oh God. Yeah. yeah. It's it's just brutal. It's like the one part of the book where Don Felder comes closest to admitting that he fucked up big time. By like just pushing these guys too far, you know. And there's this scene in the book where he calls up Joe Walsh and Timothy B. Schmidt, like right after getting like fired. And both of those guys are like actually kind of annoyed with him for like not just like signing this agreement. Like even like like Timothy B. Schmidt, like the gentlest man in rock, like he tells off Don Felder. Like in the book, Felder frames it as those guys not supporting him, but like to me. Like Schmidt and Walsh, they were just like more level headed. Like I think they recognize it that yeah, yeah, like Don and Glenn are egomaniacs. We know that. But being in the Eagles, even with all the bullshit, is a lot better than not being in the Eagles. And they were able to, I, I think, do that calculus in their head, and and Don Felder just wasn't. All right, hang on, we'll be right back with more rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good. And I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. So we've now reached the part of the episode where we give the pro side of each part of the rivalry. Let's talk about Don Felder first. You know, Don Felder came into the band when the Eagles had to make a transition from being a country rock band to more of an arena rock band. And I think if he hadn't have come into the Eagles, it's, it's very possible that they could have had, you know, some hits in the early 70s and then faded away. But because of Felder and then, of course, later Joe Walsh, they were able to become this, like, behemoth of Hotel California that just kicked their career to a whole other level. And, of course, speaking of Hotel California... 
Don Felder like wrote the music to that song. He's an integral contributor to the signature song in this band's catalog. And that can't be like underestimated. And wherever Don Felder is now, you know, he might feel sad that he's on the Eagles, but I'm sure he's being well compensated for right. his contributions to the band in writing like one of the most popular rock classics in history. Yeah, I mean, killer guitarist, amazing musical legacy just for that song alone. Uh, in his memoir, he talks about the scene. I mean, it, it could have just been imagined in his own mind of Glenn actually coming up to him and offering him, you know, pretty effusive praise for Glenn Fry, saying, you know, when you came along, you really brought us to a new level. And effectively, like, we couldn't have done it without you. And it's true, yeah. I mean, he was the guy that they needed. I think he was the great midway point between the kind of the more country stuff that Bernie Ledman was doing and the all-out, like, rock and roll that that Joe Walsh provided, too. I think that he really fulfilled that niche right in the middle between the both that will let them do these kind of weird sounds like the, you know, Mexican reggae-type stuff of uh, Hotel California. Now, going over to the pro Don Henley and Glenn Fry side, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of a quote from Don Henley that sticks out to me where he once said, For us, there were no times of sustained happiness. <laughs> happiness came in waves and then disappeared. <laughs> you know, talking about his time in the Eagles. And look, I mean, the Eagles were, I think, a fairly joyless, like business like operation. But, and we've said this many times in this series, but like, while these guys could be dicks, they were almost always right. And, as much as I like sympathize with Don Felder in a lot of ways, I consistently come down on the side of of looking at Don Henley and Glenn Fry and being like, I don't want to defend you, but <laughs> you know, it's hard for me to dispute like how you've guided this band and even like your request to make more money on these reunion tours. I mean, they were the two guys in the band that were the least replaceable. Although ironically, they did replace Glenn Fry when he passed away with his son. So I guess Don Henley is the only one who's not replaceable. But at any rate, they were the guiding forces of this band. And as hard as they could be, I think, to be in the same band with, you can't really fault a band that has as many classic songs and as many hit records as the Eagles do, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, Henley's the star who outshone his other supremely talented bandmates. And, you know, as a songwriter and vocalist, he's one of the best to ever do it. Glenn Fry, by Henley's own admission, was the man with the plan, you know? I mean, it was his band from the start. He was the one who put the band together, the original front man. And he had the drive and that type A energy to really push the band into the stratosphere. And, you know, I, I think that it really speaks to his ambition to actually be willing to take more of a backseat and sing less over the years and give more of the spotlight to Henley because he knew that was the best for the band. And his commitment to the group, you know, in later years never wavered. I mean, he was in really great pain through a lot of his uh, the later concerts with rheumatoid arthritis and other ailments, but he still performed the, uh, the History of the Eagles tour every night. I don't think he missed a show. So, yeah, I think that uh, really it wouldn't have happened without Fry. So when we look at all these guys together, you know, I know in our first episode, you said that you prefer the early country rock years of the Eagles, whereas I am more of a fan of like the arena rock Eagles of Hotel California in the long run. And I think you look at these guys together, what they were able to do, especially on that song Hotel California, which I think really does seem like a true collaboration between Henley Fry and Felder. And like, look, I, I think that speaks for itself. I mean... These guys together, even though it came apart in spectacular fashion, they created a timeless classic that I know somewhere in the world right now, there's some radio station playing <laughs> Hotel California, and it's going to be like that, I'm sure, until the end of time. I guess you could say with Felder and Walsh, the Eagles really took it to the limit. <laughs> you could say that. You could also say that they were the new kids in town who <laughs> gave them the best of their love. That's what I get for trying to outpun <laughs> the song Pun Master. That's right. So we have one more part of our Eagle series coming up. We're going to be diving into the band's relationship with David Geffen, talking about Irving Azoff, lots of blood feuds on the business side of the band. Man, I can't wait to get into it. I've had so much fun here with the Eagles, and uh, I'm excited to get to the third encore in the final episode of our series. So thank you again for listening to Rivals. We'll be back with more beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstadt. I'm Jordan Runtog. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.